bit of knowledge of the world. And in a sense, that is a semantic memory. It is his knowledge of the world, but he accesses it via an episodic memory. Most of our semantic memories do not come to us in this manner, but some might, especially if the context in which we learned it was unique. I certainly have never heard that acronym before. It sounds very vegetarian to me. Okay, well this all ties into our previous discussion of rote memorization. Yes, cases of rote memorization do often occur in some specific context, typically a classroom. But again, they involve a simple repetition of some fact. The fact is not tied into any sort of rich context. It is just presented as a fact, then represented in that same dry manner over and over. When we learn information in this manner, it can go directly into our semantic memory. We learn the fact, but the context in which we learned it might not come to mind when we retrieve it. When most of us complain that our memories are poor, we are most often referring to our declarative memories, semantic and episodic memory. In previous lectures, I suggested that by practicing strong encoding strategies, especially those that use organization, association, and dual coding, you can improve your declarative memory. Of course, that all makes sense at an intuitive level, but let's take a moment to think about how that might actually happen. One notion that is a truly fascinating idea is an idea related to something called neural plasticity. The basic idea here is that our brains, even fully developed adult brains, still alter their structure as a function of experience. One mechanism for doing this was originally hypothesized in 1948 by Donald Hebb. Hebb suggested that learning experiences could lead to enhanced connectivity between different brain areas. For example, let's return to our cabbies from London. They have to first learn all the streets of London. They then have to learn all the points of interest that lie on those streets. One can imagine the streets as represented in certain brain regions and these points of interest represented in other brain regions. When one kind of has to put these two things together, one has to coactivate both of these areas of the brain. And perhaps, when these brain areas are coactive, connections are formed. That was the notion that Hebb originally suggested, but he couldn't provide any evidence that this was the case. However, in 1973, not long ago, Tim Bliss and Turgi Lomo described a phenomenon that they observed in a rabbit hippocampus, a phenomenon that they termed long-term potentiation. Specifically, here's what they did. They would first stimulate two different locations in the hippocampus at the same time across a number of trials. Now, as they did this, Occasionally, they would stimulate just one, and they would record the amount of stimulation that passed to the other electrode. So this was the bigger picture. They would stimulate both, 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 and then every now and then stimulate just one and measure. And then both, 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 and then just one and measure. And so this would allow them to look at how the transfer of activation may have changed as a function of co-activation over time. And what they observed was that the transfer actually became stronger. So the more often two brain regions were coactive, the stronger the link between them became, either because of an increased number of connections between these regions 
or because of an actual strengthening of the connections. So the process that they observed fit exactly with Hebb's proposal, and long-term potentiation is now viewed as the primary neural basis of learning. So when you are forming associations, you are literally strengthening the connections between brain regions. Of course, I just assumed that, that, that what is true of the rabbit brain is also true of the human brain. Is that assumption justified? Well, thanks to some imaging techniques that I will describe shortly, researchers were able to examine the hippocampi of a number of our London cab drivers. Remember, those who want to be taxi drivers typically spend two or more years learning all the routes and the locations on those routes that a customer may wish to go to. They do this learning through books and also from getting out in the streets on these little scooters and that's to attach their kind of book knowledge to direct experience. Well guess what? Those who pass the London taxi driver test and have been driving for a while tend to have larger than average hippocampi. What's more, the longer a driver has been driving, the bigger their hippocampus is. This implies something truly fascinating. By working hard to encode information, you are actually strengthening, and in more unusual cases, perhaps even enlarging that part of your brain that performs this function, making it generally more effective. In some ways, then, your brain is not that different from the rest of your body. If you want to be able to run faster, practice running, and the biological tissue that supports that will be strengthened. If you want to remember more, practice remembering and the biological tissue underlying the formation of declarative memory will be similarly strengthened. Okay, so working memory is the gateway that allows the formation of declarative memories, both episodic and semantic. And now I suspect you have a pretty good sense of the sorts of things you can be doing to essentially oil that gate so it allows information to flow more readily. But guess what? While working memory is the primary gateway to long-term memory, there is also a secret passage. That secret passage is called implicit learning, and that's what we'll talk about next. Lecture 8, The Secret Passage, Implicit Memory. Most of the students who attend my class seem to be listening carefully to what I'm saying. They're taking notes, occasionally they're asking questions. However, there's a completely different breed of students. Yeah, they show up to class alright, but once they're in class they kind of settle in and relax and by all the available evidence they seem to be well either asleep or relaxing really deeply anyway. In this sort of situation you wonder sometimes why do they come to class at all? It seems like they believe they might learn something simply by being in the context in which information is swirling around. Almost like by osmosis that information would enter their body and they would learn what they want to learn without even trying. Let's assume for now that they do actually think they might learn something, despite the fact that they have no intention of thinking deeply about anything I'm saying. Could they be right? Can one learn without trying? Well, the system related to this kind of unintentional learning is called implicit memory. So far in this course, I've been really focusing on intentional encoding strategies, where people are making a really conscious effort to study information in a way that will be later remembered. 
Mnemonic strategies and rote memorization are both clear examples of intentional learning strategies. As we've discussed, the gateway for this sort of learning typically leads through working memory. Uh, it involves either massed repetition or at least some efforts to organize the information and associate with other information, um, especially information that might provide strong retrieval cues. By contrast, implicit learning refers to memories that are encoded when people really are not trying to learn at all. The notion being that just repeated experience within some context can result in knowledge being acquired without any explicit attempt to learn that knowledge. A number of experiments have now clearly uh, demonstrated that implicit learning does indeed exist and that it actually plays a major role in shaping appropriate human behavior. Now, that doesn't mean that the student just relaxing in my class is on to something. And that's because the kinds of information that we can encode in such an unintentional manner are very different from the kinds that can be learned using intentional strategies. Intentional learning strategies are indeed the best if one wants to really remember all sorts of specific content and information. So what's left to learn? What, what is there that isn't specific content? Well, the things that we can learn unintentionally relate to the structure that underlies the information that we encounter in our lives. The structure that underlies information, what do I mean by that? Well, let me first introduce you to the notion of regularities. The world that we live in is indeed full of stimulation and it's coming at us all the time, but this stimulation isn't random. Instead, much of the information that we receive comes tied to some structure, some specific structure. For example, when people speak to us, they don't just piece together words randomly. Instead, the words and the way they put them together follow what we call grammar. In English, for example, adjectives come before nouns. So we talk about things like the red house. We don't hear people saying things like the house red. Although, in other languages, of course, the grammars are different. In French, it would be la maison rouge. Uh, but within any given language, the rules of grammar, the rules that govern how we put words together, are fixed. And that represents the structure of language. Okay, so the rules of grammar represent the underlying structure, and that structure governs the role of each word in a sentence and how those words interact. And we all learn this structure years before we ever set foot in the grammar class. And that's sort of the critical point here. So sure, there are times when teachers did try to explicitly teach us the rules of grammar. But the truth is, most of us had already learned at least the basics of English grammar long before entering a class. Perhaps we couldn't explain these rules, but we could use them. We knew how to put together sentences in meaningful ways, ways that the people around us could understand. We certainly did not run around talking about the house red until we were corrected by a teacher. Now, as we'll see, that last point, the, the notion that we've learned the rules without really knowing the rules, that's critical. Unintentional learning typically results in an unconscious sort of knowledge. It is that knowledge that we refer to as implicit memory, and that's why we're using the term implicit. We learn how to basically mimic the regularities of some flow of information, but often we cannot specifically verbalize what those regularities even are. We use them, we don't know them in a sense, at least not in an explicit sense. 
So how did we first learn the rules of grammar then? Well, there is some debate over whether grammar is partly innate or not, but for purposes of understanding implicit memory, we can just ignore that debate for now. Clearly, most of what we learned about the rules of grammar came from simply being exposed to it over and over and over. From well before the time we can talk, we are already surrounded by this kind of exposure. So for example, our parents talk to us, talk to their friends, talk to each other, and talk to our siblings. TV shows talk to us, and the characters on TV talk to each other. The radio talks to us, and virtually every situation we find ourselves in, speech is there. Sometimes it's directed at us specifically, and sometimes it's just there as context. Of course, we learn speech not just by hearing it, but also by talking ourselves and, and getting feedback. And that does require tiny bursts of conscious effort. And when we're children, we receive lots of subtle or less subtle corrections. Things like, no, Steve, it's not weird foots, it's weird feet. And the bird flew, it didn't flied. You remember things like that. If we said things properly, well, then we were greeted by smiles and hugs or, or maybe even just an appropriate response. May I have a cookie? Yes, you may. That's a really nice reward for putting together those words well. So between this experience of hearing others using grammar and the corrections we received ourselves as we began using it, we just learned it. We learned the regularities that were used by others without really putting any conscious effort into thinking about those regularities. In fact, the most likely place where we do need that occasional burst of conscious effort was when there was a non-regularity. Let's think about those examples I just mentioned again. No, Steve, it is not weird foots, it's weird feet. Well, saying weird foots is actually the regularity of adding an S to make something a plural. And similarly, the bird flew, it didn't flied. Well, ED is often how we do a past tense. And so we were, in fact, using the regularity we only had to be corrected because in those cases, the proper grammar is actually an exception to the regularity. By the way, this is also why immersion is often viewed as critical to developing a fluency in some language other than your mother tongue. Yes, you can pick up all the semantic knowledge relevant to that new language via intentional learning. But if you really want to become fluent, you need to put yourself among native speakers and preferably ones that are incapable of speaking your mother tongue. When you're immersed in their language in this manner, you will implicitly learn the, the sort of nuances of the language, things that you would never learn in a classroom. These sorts of nuances would allow you to speak without an accent, as I mentioned in a previous lecture, but you might also learn things like the manner in which the native speakers combine words, well, with hand movements, a combination that often changes across languages. For example, I have a good friend who spent a lot of time in Brazil. He, in fact, married a Brazilian woman, and he learned to speak Portuguese. When he communicates in English, he kind of speaks like this. He comes across in a very sort of low-key way, very understated sort of guy. And so that's the, the guy I came to know. And it would then amaze me when his Portuguese friends, excuse me, his Brazilian friends, would come over and speak Portuguese to him. It was as if his energy suddenly got boosted three times and his talking became very animated and very exaggerated. Um, he became passionate and his hands just came right to life. He didn't learn that from a book. 
He learned it by immersing himself in the culture and absorbing the structure, both the verbal and the nonverbal structure, which comes together to define the way Brazilians communicate. How does one study the processes of memory, and implicit memory specifically, scientifically? Well, it might be nice to do studies where you just track learners of some new language from the very beginning to the point where they're fluent. But that would take a really long time, and it would be very hard to control all the possible influences that could really come in and affect the outcome of that study. So a much simpler and more direct way is to use experiments that create so-called artificial grammars um, and use them to study learning in that way. For example, suppose we create a code or an artificial language that uses single letters in place of words, and then we make up rules for how those letters can go together. Certain letters can go together, other letters cannot. So for example, maybe we decide that a legal string of letters will only begin with the letters F or R. If a string begins with F, then it must be followed by either, say, W, D, or R. But if it begins with R, then it must be followed by either F, D, T, or L. With enough rules about what's legal, the researchers can now create a set of strings that conform to these rules. And they can also create a set of so-called illegal letter strings, letter strings that somehow violate those rules and have letters occurring in combinations that are inconsistent with the rules that we set up. In a typical experiment then, participants would be exposed to some of the legal items. So let's say we had 40 legal items. We maybe show participants 20 of these items over and over and over again. Okay? So they've seen all these items and they've seen them repeatedly. Uh, they're, so, they're told just to look at these, look at the strings, don't try to memorize them, but think of them as all members of the same family. Think of them as relatives and try to just kind of get the sense of how they're similar. Then, in a second phase, we present another 20 legal strings, so not the same ones, but ones that were created by the same rules. So these new 20 legal strings presented along with 20 illegal strings. We mix them all up, randomize them, present them one at a time to people, and we say, your task is just to say whether you think the one you're seeing is a relative to those ones you saw earlier. Okay? You'll never see one exactly like what you saw, but you'll see ones that are relatives of them. And it seems kind of odd, but people say, okay, they do that. They go through each string and say, yes, I think that one's a relative. No, I don't think it is. And they do that for the 40 strings. Okay, the first critical finding is that participants can indeed identify the relatives at high levels of accuracy. They're often in the 70 to 80% correct range. So they apparently do become sensitive to the structure that is common to the legal strings. And they can use that structure to identify other strings that seem to be created from the same structure. What makes this form of learning and, and this form of memory interesting is that participants use the structure of the rules uh, without feeling like they've learned it at all. They'll often say they feel like they're just guessing. This latter finding is made especially clear via a follow-up study. In that follow-up study, participants are explicitly told about the structure prior to the test. That is, the rules that were used to generate the legal strings are explained to them, and they are told that they can use this new information now to distinguish relatives 
from non-relatives. They are then given the same test as before, but this time they do reliably worse. It is as if the conscious knowledge of that underlying structure made it harder for them to just rely on their implicit memory. So implicit memory then is the secret passage to long-term memory. Working memory is the main gateway, and when information goes through that gateway, then that specific information can be retrieved later, either with or without the contextual details that were associated with the encoding episode. But when information enters long-term memory through this secret passage, through implicit learning, then something about the structure underlying the information is learned, but there is no explicit mastery of the information itself. This sort of implicit learning, in fact, is very common in our everyday lives. Music is an area where implicit memory seems to play an enormous role. Uh, even in our ability to recognize musical genres as distinct. Musical genres are often defined by a, the sets of rules that have been used to create those genres. And even though we, don't, we may not know those rules explicitly, we can still identify different genres from the structure of the music we hear. So for example, you've probably heard guitar solos. Um, and some that occur, say, in blues music, and some that occur in other music, let's say, country. You may have no idea that there really is a structure that underlies how those different genres of music are put together. Uh, for example, blues music tends to use notes that come from something called a pentatonic minor scale, and that gives them sort of a sad, bluesy feel. Country solos tend to use notes that come from a major scale, often the pentatonic major, for example, and they tend to have a more bright or happy sound to them. Um, so what I want to do for you now is kind of give you the sense that you in fact know about these scales even though you probably don't know explicitly. Right? So we're going to do that through a demonstration. I'm going to play for you two solos. One that's going to have a bit of a country vibe and one that's going to have a bit of a blues vibe. And I'm, I'm betting you can kind of tell the difference. Okay? Here's the first one. That's one. Think about whether you think that sounded country or bluesy. Now here's another one. Okay. You've never heard either of those solos before. I know that because I just made those up. But did you sense the, the fact that the first one sounded a little more country and the second one sounded a little bit more bluesy? Even if you're not a fan of one or the other style of music, you've still been around it. You've still heard it being played. And that's probably enough for you to have that sense. Now, while we're talking about music, let's stick with it for a bit. And let me make a, a specific claim about what is and what is not being stored in implicit memory when you have music. If you had to define music, how would you define it, by the way? Well, the oldest philosophical definition of music is actually very concise. Music is defined as organized sound. 
Don't you love it when something as complex as music can be captured in a simple two-word definition like that? Organized sound. Well, that's it. That's music. But really, this is exactly what music is. It's a combination of rhythms, melodies, and lyrics that often repeat in some structured way. It's organized. You may think you haven't, you don't know some of these structures. You'd be amazed at how many of them you do. Let me just give you another little taste. Here's a structure that's in all sorts of blues music, especially. In fact, it's called the 12-bar blues. It goes a little bit like this. Okay, that's the 12-bar blues. Again, you've probably heard that among, uh, in a bunch of different songs without even really realizing it, but it's a structure that's very common, and that's the kind of thing that implicit learning can capture. Okay, as suggested then, implicit memory and declarative memory can often work together as they do in music. Declarative memory being responsible for the lyrics, implicit memory for the structure. There are other powerful examples of this, by the way. One of them is medical diagnosis. So doctors, when they're in training, they certainly engage in very deep, effortful encoding to try to learn things, for example, like the specific symptoms that are associated with various medical issues. And obviously that sort of deep learning aids their declarative memory. But they also do internships. And the purpose of those internships is to allow them to see many specific and individual cases of these same issues. It's a form of immersion. And that's the prime training ground for the formation of implicit memory. So as a result, many doctors will admit that while they have trouble sometimes giving a really explicit justification for their diagnosis, uh, the sort of justification that they could get from their declarative memory, they nonetheless are confident basing some diagnosis on what they might call their experience as a doctor. These experiences, seeing these various cases, have allowed them to recognize some medical issue without necessarily giving them conscious access to the basis of that recognition. So, don't get too upset when your doctors may have trouble explaining why they think some course of action is appropriate. Alright, so the examples I gave you so far are strongly related to rather specific domains. And we had language, we had music, and then most recently medicine. But implicit memories are formed for a very wide range of stimuli that we experience. Uh, in fact, they're central to our being able to effectively function in our worlds. So let's get a little more general, and I want to introduce you to the notion of script theory. Okay, so you've been to sit-down restaurants, for example, and you've probably been to fast food restaurants. If you thought about the sequence of events that occur within each context, and, and think about them sort of like it's a scene in a play, it's quite easy to specify a schema or a script for what happens. In a sit-down restaurant, for example, you walk in, you usually wait at some maitre d' location, you follow the maitre d' to your seats, waiter brings menus, later returns with your order, etc. Eventually, the waiter brings your food, later comes by to ask, is everything okay? Sometimes two or three times. Uh, and then when you finish, the staff clears your tables, the waiter brings a bill, you pay, and uh, you leave. Now, the script is of course very different for a fast food restaurant. At a fast food restaurant, the very first thing you do is order and pay. And then you're given your food at, the, at some counter. You then bring that food to a table 
where you can eat it as soon as you sit down and you clear your refuse when you're all done. The underlying structure or grammar of how these two types of restaurants work is usually called a schema or a script and it's part of our implicit memory. So you can think of it really just like the rules of grammar in the sense that grammar describes the structure underlying how words unfold in sentences. Well, these regularities at these different types of restaurants describe the general features of how events unfold, so in that sense it's a schema, and about the role that you play within these events, so in that sense it's a script. We learn these regularities, these scripts, and we learn them in the same way as we learn grammar, mostly just by being exposed to them, repeatedly. As it was with grammar, you were there were probably a few corrections along the way from our parents, inappropriate behavior we displayed in one restaurant or another. Uh, but, but you can use these implicit scripts that you've learned and function quite effectively. And you don't always just have to learn them through direct experience either. Uh, you've probably seen restaurants portrayed on TV or in movies or you've heard others describe events that they themselves have experienced. Regardless of the specifics of your learning experience, there's a structure underlying how things unfold, and you'll have a memory for that structure without ever intentionally encoding it. Your implicit memory of that structure helps you interact in reasonable and expected ways when you enter either a sit-down or a fast-food restaurant. Once the script is learned, it guides our behaviors in ways that fit with the regularities of the context, allows us to behave what we would call appropriately. Now, of course, scripts aren't just about restaurants. We form scripts about the roles we play within classes, within movie theaters, within airports or taxis, hotel check-ins and check-outs, shopping, really any context with some consistent underlying process, some regularity governing the way events unfold.